You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay. Why is it called the covenant of grace? Well, let's look at this covenant and try to answer that question. Well, first of all, the very fact that God would make a second covenant is gracious. You remember that the reason he made the first covenant was because of his infinite condescension. The distance between God and man is so great. In fact, it is infinite. That for him to enter into a covenant with man was an act of infinite condescension on his part. So the original covenant of works was his infinite condescension. That covenant was broken. Now the sinfulness of man implies God's infinite love and his abounding grace. That he would even consider entering into a second covenant is abundantly gracious. So first of all, the reason that it's the covenant of grace was the very fact that it's a covenant. What is a covenant? Well, one of my professors puts it this way. A covenant is a solemn commitment with divine sanctioning. A solemn commitment. Uh, We know covenants in our experience. Marriage is a covenant. You make a commitment. That's the essence of the marriage covenant. Uh, The covenant of grace is no different. God makes a commitment. He promises And he keeps his commitment. And he made that commitment with divine sanctioning. In other words, with uh, curses and blessings attached to it, promises and threats. A man's commitment is uncertain. Various things can disrupt a commitment that we've made. Death itself can end the commitment that we made. But God is absolutely certain when he makes a commitment. There is no wavering. There is no diversion. God keeps his word. So the covenant itself is gracious. The Most High God has committed himself, he's bound himself, if we can use that word reverently, to the terms of this covenant. When when God makes a promise, he binds himself to it. He will do no different. And therefore, when you go to prayer and you pray the covenant, he loves to hear that because what you're doing is taking him at his word. And our God is worthy of trust. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. He has committed himself to the terms of this covenant. If you believe, you have eternal life. That's a commitment that he's made. That's the covenant of grace. And it is gracious. He will not fail to fulfill its terms because he is faithful. He may be trusted with our dearest concerns, our eternal destiny, our souls. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So, of course, here Jeremiah is dwelling upon the faithfulness of God and basically the covenant of grace because he will keep the promises he's made. God is faithful, says Paul, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is faithful. Over and over again, the Bible authors rehearse his faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. 
It is a gracious commitment that he makes. He will not change. He will not modify its terms or withdraw its benefits. If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. That's it. That's the covenant of grace. What God has promised, that to which he's bound himself, he will fully and precisely fulfill. Any questions on this first idea of why it is so gracious? Any comments? Okay? Let's get a little more deep in there. It's gracious because of the mediator provided. For God to provide a mediator for this covenant is an act of infinite and abundant grace. Man's sinfulness, as you know and as we've said, prevents him from having any access into the presence of the Holy One. The angels themselves cover their faces and their feet with their wings out of humility for the holiness of God. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So for God to enter into a covenant with sinners is a gracious thing. And to do that, he had to provide a mediator, somebody to go between. And he did so. Without a go-between, sinners would be consumed. There is no possibility to have any fellowship with a holy God if you're a sinful person. Job says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And of course, as we know, the God-man, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is able to do so. He is man. He can lay his hand upon man. He is God. He can lay his hand upon God, so to speak. And he is an arbiter between us. Would that he, our mediator, were present, longing for this idea that God would provide such a one, a go-between. And man no sooner rebelled against God in the garden than he was alienated, he was separated from God's presence. You know the story. He was exiled from the Garden of Eden. And yet even in the curse itself upon the serpent, he made a promise that the mediator would come, the seed of the woman, the champion of the godly line. The justice of God obliged him to curse the sinner, Justice of God obliged him with, with, to withhold all blessings from the sinner. That was the covenant of works. Those were the terms and the sanctions. And he who is thrice holy and he who is perfectly just demanded satisfaction for a sin of infinite guilt. Because a sin against an infinite God is culpable of infinite liability. Guilt. Unsaved, sinful man will spend eternity, and this is dreadful, paying for the debt of sin down to the very last penny. The problem is he can't pay the very last penny because the sin of infinite guilt requires a punishment of infinite duration. He can't pay the last penny. Wonderfully, Jesus did pay the last penny which is why we don't have to pay even one. So no mere man could ever serve as a mediator because man is finite to begin with, and he's sinful, and therefore he is utterly incapable of satisfying any of the demands of justice. He couldn't serve as a mediator, even if he was sinless. He couldn't be a mediator between God and man. If ever he would regain access 
to God and any kind of acceptance in God's sight, it must be through a fit mediator. You remember how Adam and Eve were thrust from the garden and God stationed two cherubim with the flaming swords at the entrance to Eden. And in order to get back into Eden, you have to go through the flaming swords. And so if man were to go through the flaming swords, he would be consumed, killed, annihilated. And that's why in the temple of the Old Testament, even the tabernacle, you'll find that the curtain that separates the court from the holy place and then the holy place from the most holy place, in that curtain are woven all of these angelic figures with swords. And the high priest goes through the curtain with the blood to foreshadow the work of Jesus Christ, signifying that it's re-entering into the presence of God, into paradise. It's an amazing thing. And so God provided a mediator. That's a gracious thing in the second covenant. The only mediator is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, two natures, one person, forever. I was interacting with one of my previous professors last past week, and we concluded our email correspondence, what a Savior. And then he said, what a Savior indeed. Two natures, one person forever. He's incarnate forever. The mediator that God provided is absolutely unprecedented and amazing. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He provided a mediator. In fact, it was his own son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There you have the terms. You believe, you have eternal life. Not you will have it, you have it now. And God is faithful. He has bound himself to that commitment. Anybody who believes in Christ, I don't care who you are or what you've done, you have eternal life. So the mediator provided is an indicator that this is a gracious covenant. Any comments or questions? Mark? Absolutely. The question is, if you're a non-believer, God does not, cannot bless you, absolutely. You have forfeited every right to any blessing whatsoever. <clears throat> now, you say to yourself, well, the wicked prosper. Doesn't that bless, isn't that blessing? No. That's simply an aggravation of the unbeliever's guilt. That unbeliever will be held more responsible for those good things in this life that he's enjoyed. If the unbeliever had his druthers, if he understood what was going to happen, he would have it all taken away so that his guilt would not be as aggravated. It's a tragic thing. Uh, Alex? Um, is there any indication in Scripture that Adam knew that if he sinned before the fall, that his progeny would be fallen and would die as well? I think so. That's a good question. Did Adam know that he was a public person when he was sinning, when he sinned in the garden? I think he did. I don't know how extensive his knowledge of that. I mean, we're speculating here. I don't know. But I think he did. Um, I think he certainly understood that he represented his wife and he failed. <laughs> he didn't do what he was supposed to do in protecting his wife. So at least he understood he's representing his wife. And by that and because of that, I think he would understand he was representing his children who would come after him. Yeah. He's the worst criminal in the history of mankind. Right? 
He's killed more people than anybody else we know. <laughs> anybody else before we go on? Two natures? Ah, good question. What's the purpose of Christ's human nature once we're in heaven? I mean, I can, we can understand he's on earth, right? He had to die. Why in heaven? Well, because he has to intercede for you and I forever. He ever lives to intercede. That's how he can save us to the uttermost. So it's not just his one and done. He goes into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, and he'll intercede for you and me forever. And he has to do that as our high priest, which requires him to be a human being. High priests have to be selected from among men. So thankfully, he will be a human being forever. That, that in and of itself is staggering. God, who is pure spirit, who never, ever experienced any kind of pain or suffering, now he has a human body forever. Good question. Okay. Let's keep going. Mediator offered. Not just provided, but the mediator offered. It's gracious for God to offer the only mediator to sinners. It's one thing for God to become incarnate. It's an incredible thing to mediate. But now God offers him. In the preaching of the gospel, God makes this offer to everyone. It's indiscriminate. He does it to the whole world. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... They groped in the darkness, trying to find that thing that would satisfy the eternal cavity or the cavity of eternity in their heart. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Free, freely offered. And what happens when he freely offers this mediator? He's rebuffed, he's scorned, he's reviled, he's rejected, and God keeps offering. It's an amazing act of grace. The eternal call goes forth as a true, free, and sincere offer of salvation. And that's what's amazing to me. Somebody says, well, Pastor, I thought you talked about predestination. God elects, and those are the ones who are saved. That's true. But the offer is sincere. How can that be? I don't know. It's a mystery. God says, I have my elect. They're the ones who are going to be saved because if you're not elect, you can't believe. You have to be born again. But the offer is sincere. And those who reject the offer will be culpable for rejecting the Son. And I don't know how that works out. So if you have a question, we can try to think about it, but I don't have an answer. It's a true, free, sincere offer of salvation to the entire world. And the great aim of the gospel ministry is to make known to the world Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It displays the infinite wisdom of God in a way that no other method could ever do. Preaching. The folly of preaching. You know what the world says. We've talked about this before. You got somebody standing up in that pulpit just talking to you for 30 minutes? What, why are you wasting your time? Who does he think he is? You know. And God says, according to his wisdom, this is how I'm going to save sinners. That which is preached, the cross of Christ, is considered by the world absolute foolishness. Not just the preaching, the manner, but the content itself. Folly. You got a criminal that you're holding up as a savior? 
The method itself, preaching, is deemed by the world as utter folly because it humbles their pride. I want to do something. I want to earn my way. I want to feel good about myself doing good to others so God will accept me. Has nothing to do with what you've done or haven't done. Has nothing to do with your sins. Has nothing to do with your virtues. Has everything to do with what Christ has done. That's gracious. It appears so weak and ineffective that the unbelieving world scoffs at such a silly way of doing things. But as we're told, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast. I used to think that that verse only applied to the people that he chose. You know, not many of us are noble or of high birth, that kind of thing. And it's true. But I came to realize that also applies to the manner and the method and the content of preaching. Foolish. You're telling me this is how we're supposed to be saved? It humbles man's pride. Therefore, in the application of redemption, God gets all the glory. He alone makes it effectual. Divine wisdom alone contrived the method of redemption and the way to make it known. So the mediator offered as a reason that it's gracious. He made a covenant, that's gracious. He provides the mediator, that's gracious. He offers the mediator to you, that's gracious. Any questions or comments on this? Okay. Let's keep going. The benefits received, of course. This is another reason why the covenant of grace is called gracious. In this covenant of grace, this solemn commitment that God has made, he promises both life and salvation. And of course, these two things, they are comprehensive blessings. They represent all that we need in life, peace, joy. In salvation, salvation from evil, salvation to good. So it's not just the things from which we're saved, but it's the things to which we're saved. Eternal blessedness in the very presence of God. Life, but not salvation, you remember, was promised in the covenant of works. If you obey, you'll live. If you disobey, you'll die. That's the covenant of works with Adam. So God promised life. He did not promise salvation. In Jesus Christ... We receive life here, and we inherit glory hereafter. Absolutely. Utterly certain. Alan right now is in the presence of glory, based upon the promise of God, the work of Christ, and the application of the Holy Spirit. We know that, because God is faithful. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's the overarching promise of all of Scripture. All the promises are subsumed under that one general promise. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. If you are God's people, if he is for you, who can be against you? If he gave you his son, what will he withhold from you? That's what's basically being said there. There are many other blessings represented. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Every sin is wiped clean. There is complete pardon. 
It's as if you were on the scaffold with the rope around your neck, ready for the floor to drop out, and the courier comes up with this letter from the governor, and it is a pardon. Full, free, done. They remove the rope, you walk off, you're free. Forgiveness of sins. Those whom he predestined, he called. You are called by God. That's a gracious thing. You're justified. You're accepted in his sight. You'll be glorified. That's such a gracious thing. The glorification of sinners is one of the most amazing things that you can think of. He didn't do this for angels. Superior creatures. They excel us in knowledge. They're mightier than us in power. They're superior creatures. And one of the reasons that some theologians think that the devil and his horde rebelled is because they were told that they, superior creatures, would have to serve the inferior creatures, man. And the pride of Satan welled up and he refused. Now, that's total speculation. We have no idea what caused Satan to rebel. We do know it's pride. But some have said that was the reason that he had no willingness to serve such base, inferior creatures as us. But we're told in Hebrews that ministers or angels are sent out as ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. At the ladies' study, we talked about adoption. It is probably the pinnacle of the benefits in the covenant of redemption. You're justified, forgiven, and accepted so that you can be adopted, become a child of the king, an heir of salvation, a fellow heir with Christ. That's a gracious blessing. Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, all of those benefits. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So eternally alive, everlasting life in the presence of God. So through the mediation of Jesus Christ, we receive all the benefits of the covenant of grace. That is a gracious thing. Not just the covenant itself, not just the mediator provided, not just the mediator offered, but the benefits of which you and I are unworthy. We don't deserve them. And that's grace. Mercy spares you from what you deserve. Grace gives you what you don't deserve. And that's what we have here. God was willing to accept the satisfaction from Christ. Think of it. He was willing according to his infinite grace, to impute the righteousness of his Son to you, to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. That's grace. You and I are guilty, corrupt, unrighteous, unfaithful, and yet God clothes us with this righteousness of Christ simply because we take him at his word and we trust him. Any questions on the benefits received? Carolyn? Is there any good that will come of that? 
Yeah, the question is, what about, we know that for believers, suffering is a gift, and it's used and overruled for good. What about the unbeliever who suffers? There's no good. Only if it drives him to Christ. Other than that, it's just the beginning of his torments, which he'll endure after death. I mean, I hate to put it that way. It's, it's dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. But I think that's the truth. Jared? That makes sense. But at the same time, we are called to alleviate suffering. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, I'm sorry, so when we're doing good to somebody else, trying to alleviate their suffering, that's for Christ and not for him? Well, if, if, if Christ has no intention of, of if there's no good that will come from their suffering, for them, right? Right. Um, what we are called to, if I walk by you know, a guy lying on the sidewalk bleeding out, right. and you think God's whole life, you know, I, I think you can make a pretty strong argument one. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, we know that that suffering is is just desserts, right? From from God's perspective, it is just desserts. But from our perspective, we love our neighbor as ourselves, and so we don't know if what this will lead to, you know, repentance or. So we love the neighbor. Uh, you're right. I mean, we do it for Jesus Christ ultimately, but we do love the neighbor too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, no, you're right. The believer has a different motivation, a deeper motivation. You're right. Yep. That's a good point. Would you say, though, that there is a sort of, there is a temporary good that can come from that? You know, mm-hmm. like in the sense of suffering can lead to the development of something that's going to help humanity, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. So there is a temporary good that can come from suffering. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're right, Erica, that there could be a temporary benefit. Um, The discovery of penicillin, we'll we'll say that. Maybe there was somebody who was an unbeliever who helped, you know. But ultimately, in terms of the individual soul, I think that's what we're kind of getting at here, yeah. So, I mean... Again, the blessings and the cursings in this life, sufferings and benefits in this life for the unbeliever, neither one of them serve as good, ultimately. And that's, that's the dreadful thing. For the believer, it all serves as good. God takes away the sting of death. He takes away the evil of afflictions. They're, they're good. They're gifts. Philippians 1.29. It's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. It's a gift. From Paul's perspective, it's a gift. Rihanna? Would you say that then the believer who's helping the believer who's suffering, you are called to do that, but there's also a purpose in it in the sense that it's either going to be used against him as judgment, like, look, the Lord came to you to release us and you didn't respond, or it's used to, like, have salvation. So there's, like, a purpose either way in that help, no matter what the outcome, you know, there is an outcome that the Lord sees and knows. There's an outcome for both. 
for the Christian who helped will be rewarded for that, and for the unbeliever who didn't even think twice about Christ in receiving it, um, yeah, there will be an outcome for that. And hopefully it leads to repentance. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance, right? I think it's Romans 5. So, Sandra, did you have a question? Um, no, I like, was just Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. Uh, that's God's common grace. It's, he gives even to the just and the unjust good things. They're, these are expressions of his goodness, not necessarily his redeeming grace, right? So yeah, that's his common grace. Um, God is so abundantly good that he'll give children and seasons and harvests even to unbelievers. It just shows his goodness. But his grace, his redemptive grace, is reserved for his people. Okay. Um, oh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, to impute his righteousness. The condition required, the gracious, it's gracious for him to require faith as a condition of the covenant. So for you to enjoy these benefits, to receive the mediator, to accept the offer, it requires faith. Some people don't like the language of condition because this is an unconditional covenant. But as long as we understand, as we'll see, that the condition is met by God, not me, we can use that language, okay? So don't, don't get jittery yet. <laughs> Receiving Christ implies the right to him as mediator and benefits to all who did receive him who believed in his name. There you have it. There's a condition. You believe in him. He gave the right to become children of God who were born of God. So if that condition is satisfied, then the mediator is yours and the benefits become yours as well. You live forever. The believer may say, Christ is mine, together with all his benefits. He is mine, I am his. Song of Solomon. This loving, intimate relationship between Christ and his child. It's one thing to say Jesus is the redeemer of the elect, which even the devil will say. And another thing to say Jesus is my redeemer, which only the believer can say. The former is revealed by and based upon scripture. The latter is an expression of faith. He's my redeemer. So for man to be saved, he need not work or pay or suffer anything. Those aren't conditions, but only and simply believe. That's the only condition in this covenant that must be met. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So there you have it. There's the condition met. The Israelites need only look to Christ, or look to the bronze serpent to be healed, and we need only look to Christ to be saved. That, that's such an amazing thing, so gracious. You just trust him. There's nothing you have to do. Your salvation is not based upon your performance, and it's so hard for us to get out of that thinking, you know. It's not what we do. It's not what we didn't do. It's not how we sin. It's not how we display virtue. It's all Christ. And the only condition is trust him. Without faith, 
it's impossible to please him. The flip side is true. With faith, you please him. We affirm by conditional, faith leads to salvation, and yet the absolute nature of the covenant. So what do I mean by that? When we say the absolute nature of the covenant, it means that there's nothing you and I can do, even believe, to satisfy the condition. Something has to happen on his end to make this condition fulfilled. We take it for granted when we say it's conditional that faith is not in our power to perform and only God can give it as a gift, as we're going to see in the next slide. But let me stop here and see if there's any comments or questions. Yes, sir. I always thought it was strange when they were comparing this, like what was lifted in the desert and being a serpent, which is like a picture of evil, Satan. Is it because like God wanted them to be able to recognize their sinfulness? Like, why, why wouldn't it be a lamb that was being raised as a picture of Christ? Um, so I, I've always thought, but I mean, my question is, is it because a part of knowing that you need a savior is, is knowing the condition? Is that why? Like, why was it? Serpent. Yeah, why was it a serpent right. that they were looking to yeah. for salvation? That's a great question. Why was it a bronze serpent, not a bronze lamb? <laughs> well, because they were being killed by serpents. You know, the consequence for their disobedience was all these serpents were coming, biting them, and killing them. So the very means that God uses to save them is the serpent that they looked around them and saw them coming to bite them. I don't think it has... I mean, it could have some some parallel with the serpent in the garden and Jesus becoming uh, sin so that we might become the righteousness of God when Jesus was on that cross bearing the sin of all the elect... In one sense, he was looked upon as this vile sinner. Not that he was inherently sinful, but he bore our sin. But I don't think that really parallels too well. I think it's because of those snakes that were biting them in the wilderness. Yeah. Okay. So the condition required was gracious, spirit-given. It's gracious for God to give the Holy Spirit to all the elect. Oh, I'm sorry, Rob? So, bronze, do you, you know, the bronze altar and all that, do you read anything into that metal that's symbolic of, you know, that sort of adamantine, like, judgment, hmm. unyielding justice, God's justice? That's a very good question. The question is... Now, I did not think of that. <laughs> I, I read... That. I certainly didn't. <laughs> I'm wondering if... Uh, if uh, I don't. I've never thought about that. I mean, I, the question is: Does the, the nature of the bronze serpent <coughs> mean anything? <coughs> Excuse me. I've never thought of that. That's a very good question. I don't know. I have to think about that. Yeah. Okay. So it's gracious for God. Make the covenant, provide the mediator, offer the mediator, give the benefits, require faith as a condition, and then to give his spirit. That's gracious. He made this promise to work faith in them with all other graces. So again, we have this idea that you can't even believe on your own. Unless you're born again, you cannot trust in Christ. He will be nothing but a criminal in your eyes and folly before you. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I'll give you a new heart, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's the promise. It is a gracious promise. 
Everything is from his end. He doesn't benefit from you and I. He gives us everything. This is why the Spirit is called by Paul the Spirit of faith at one point, because he's the one who gives us that faith which satisfies the only condition in the covenant. So it is a gracious covenant. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts as well as other graces, which are called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. The fruit of the Spirit, where we go. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. The Spirit works these in his people. And we rejoice in each other's presence because we see the increase of these graces in each other as we worship together and live our lives together. We can see the image of God being recreated in one another. It's very encouraging. All these graces are from the Spirit, the author of all grace, and they all proceed from saving faith. Gracious. Again, this is one of the reasons why it's called the covenant of grace. He's giving you and I something that we don't deserve. The indwelling Spirit produces in the life of the Christian sincere obedience, the obedience of faith. This is the way that we're to walk in. This is the way of salvation. You don't earn anything by it, but you're expressing your gratitude simply by trying to obey your Father in heaven. It's the way of the truth and sincerity of faith is evidenced, and we're led in the way of salvation. And so in so doing, as we obey a little more sincerely and consistently than before, we discern our union with Christ and our right to all the covenant blessings. Wow, I'm not nearly as irritable this year as I was last year. That's gracious. You know, that's a good thing, by the way, (laughs) becoming less irritable. We're enabled to obey God's law, not as a ground for salvation, but as the way appointed for saints. Any questions or comments? Rob? Um, these are beautiful truths. What, what do you do when, when it's just head knowledge and you want it to, like, I guess, reach your core and be affected by it? Pray. Yeah. Pray like crazy. Is it Prayer. Normal, is it normal to have times where it's not, like, it's just head knowledge? Yeah, I mean, we, we go, our Christian life is cyclical in one sense. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, up and down, up and down. We are making progress. The Christian life, as we'll see, is never static. It's either going forward or backward. But the true Christian is never going to fall totally away, you know. So you'll experience those times which we call dry times, And in many ways, God intends those times to be dry, to teach you and I to walk our life in accord with his word. We trust his word. He's given us his word. He's put his spirit within us. And we are to learn to walk the Christian life, trusting our Father in heaven. A lot of times, new believers will have a period of honeymoon period we talk about, right? And God is very gracious and gentle with a new believer, doesn't take long, though, before he removes the training wheels and says, okay, let's get to work. Let's learn to walk. Let's learn to run, right? And so he'll take us through those times. What is it, Isaiah 50.10? 50, 50.10, uh, I think, is the one. Let those who walk in darkness trust the word. 
right? Believers can go through times of darkness. And so uh, we're being taught by God how to trust his word because he is worthy of trust. What does he say in Revelation 1? Revelation 21, maybe. These words are trustworthy and true. He emphasizes the fact to John as he sees these amazing visions, right, of heaven and the future. Write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. There's all kinds of things out there vying for your affection and your allegiance. I want you to learn to trust my word. That's the key. Want to follow up? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I think in our Western society, meditating is often like a negative connotation, it's like Buddhism and that kind of thing, but aren't we called to meditate on uh, Christ's scripture? Absolutely. How, how does one do that? Like what? Like, a oh, how does one meditate on the scriptures? Well, meditation has a bad rap because the other Eastern religions want you to empty your mind to meditate. And Christian meditation is fill your mind with the word of God. Memorize it. Or if you can't memorize it, have it in front of you and just go over it and over it and over it, right? Think about it. Slow down. Don't just like ram through it to get through it. Think about the words. This is one of the great reasons why learning a different language is helpful. It forces us to slow down and really think about what's being said here. Greek. Let's say you want to learn Greek. Translate the Gospel of John. Well, you really have to slow down and think about, okay, how can I translate that phrase? You think about it, you meditate on it. Or you can just uh, have a commentary next to you as you read the scriptures and have that person help you think about the scriptures. That's, that's one way to do it. I, I like memorizing. For me, that's the best way for me. And review, 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 you know. So Christian meditation is a lost art, but it's so important. Carolyn? I was just thinking of a wonderful book that Jim and I read it was Donald S. Whitney's book on the disciplines yes. of the Christian faith. And wow, it's just so wonderful. And he explained meditating as the difference between going over a lake in a rowboat and then when you meditate on that word, the rowboat has a glass bottom. Oh, yeah. I just thought was such a great that's a great analogy. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that was a great book. Yeah, Donald Whitney's uh, Disciplines of the Christian Life or something like the Spiritual Disciplines, yeah. Melissa? Well, just reminded me of one of my favorite books. It was the point that God doesn't want us to be dependent on our feeling of the truth, but on the actual truth themselves. Right. So the author talks about how God's Exactly. So she said a book that she read where God teaches us to trust in his word rather than our feelings. He doesn't want us to trust in our feelings. That doesn't mean feelings are bad. Feelings are good. I'm glad we feel. But we don't trust in them. We're not governed by them. Children are governed by their feelings. And they're all over the place, you know. What I want, if I don't get it, I'm just blowing up. Uh, Adults learn to govern their feelings by the truth. And that's important. Okay, wow, now we have a couple minutes. Wow, that clock's wrong. Anybody else? Final comments or questions? Alex? I just had a comment. Um, I don't know why I never thought of this, but when you said that Eastern meditation is <coughs> your mind, it 
you're emptying your mind, then you don't have anything to think about. That's the point. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's, that's been my question, too. Yeah. It's just vacuous. Like, what, what are you thinking? I'm not. Okay. That's not meditation. You meditate upon something, right? And so if you're emptying your mind, something's going to fill the vacuum. What's that saying that Jesus said? If you exercise a demon, he'll go out. You clean up the place. Seven more will come, even worse than the first. If you empty your mind, you're exposing yourself to something. So fill it with scripture. Fill it with the truth. Anybody else before we close in prayer? Okay? Let's close. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are a good and gracious God. We thank you for your solemn commitment to give us life and salvation in Jesus Christ and for the promises that you've made that you will keep. We're grateful for the Holy Spirit and ask that he would now prepare us for worship. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.